This is TSFPN.com, the Sci-Fi Podcast Network. You found the best podcast in the universe. It's Saturday, the 21st of January, 2006, and you're listening to The Secrets. Welcome to this podcast of The Secrets, the podcast for anyone who is serious about writing. The Secrets home can be found at www.stormwolf.com. For the next 15 minutes, we'll talk about writing and how to get you even closer to seeing your name on the spine of a book. Welcome to this 13th special edition of The Secrets. I apologize for having taken such a hiatus from the podcast, but between the holidays, traveling, writing a novel, my time has really been a bit tight. Um, add to that wrestling with a computer problem that was making recording really, really difficult, and I hope I've got it solved, otherwise it's just going to be a bother. In any event, I hope you can understand the delay, and I appreciate you sticking with me. I'm Michael A. Stackpole, a science fiction and fantasy novelist, an editor and game and computer game designer who actually finished his 41st novel this week. I've had 38 books published, and eight of those hit the New York Times bestseller list. A Secret Atlas is due out in mass market paperback at the end of January, and its sequel, Cartomancy, will hit the stores in trade paperback in the end of February. It actually goes on sale on my dad's birthday, which is kind of cool. The Secrets Podcast is an audio companion to my writing newsletter, which is also called The Secrets. You can learn more about the newsletter on my homepage at www.stormwolf.com. Download the sample issues and decide if it's worth a dollar an issue to focus your writing on success. Back issues are also available, and the Hurricane Katrina relief package is still running. There are several different things I want to talk about in this installment. The first is Agents. I've touched upon what agents do in brief in the past, and it's also very important that you understand what agents don't do. First off, agents represent your work to a publisher. They do their best to convince the publisher that they really want the book, and when the publisher expresses interest in the book, the agent negotiates the best deal possible for that book. It's in the agent's best interest to get you as much as possible for the book because they get a percentage of what you are paid. Industry standard for agents right now is 15% of what you get domestically and 20% of foreign sales. This might sound like a lot, but 85% of something is better than 100% of nothing. Secondly, agents are abreast of the latest developments in contract terms. They really try to limit how much publishers get in the way of rights to your work. In reality, what you sell to a publisher is a license to publish your work. You retain rights to it and in every contract there is a huge rights clause that spells out who owns what rights and how the monies will be split for those rights. For example, a book contract might try to hold the gaming rights for a book, but in my contracts we strike that clause. Since I have ties into the gaming industry and can conceivably sell the book there without the publisher's help, there's no reason we want to give them a piece of that action. And publishers are willing to let that go because it's not a deal breaker. A deal breaker is a clause that the publisher insists on having in the contract or there's no deal. In recent years, this has been an insistence on electronic rights to books, and this was well in advance of ebooks. Publishers saw a revolution coming and staked a claim. You agreed to it or you found someone else to publish your work, hence a deal breaker. Agents have knowledge of all this and they know how to split rights out, how to reduce percentages or how to get other concessions out of the publisher that will benefit their clients. Thirdly, agents are good at seeing you stay busy. A publisher with a series might ask an agent about one of his writers. 
The agent, quite naturally, will get in touch with that particular writer, but will also suggest to the editor that a few other of his clients could do the work, if needs be. Editors also call agents to find out if they have a client with a particular type of book available, and the agent can either direct a manuscript to them or can talk to a client about preparing a book proposal that might fit into whatever line the editor was talking about. Fourth, many agents offer some editorial services to their clients. They'll look a book over and suggest changes that'll make the book tighter. Some agents will go so far as to help rewrite books, and if that's what you need, great. If not, it's a service you can live without. If you look for agents online, you'll run into a variety of legitimate and not so legitimate agencies. Generally speaking, you want an agent in the greater New York area, one who lives and works there and not just maintains offices there. Okay, Los Angeles is fine if you're looking for movie work, but it's an entirely different kettle of fish. You really want an agent who can, with minimal notice, get to a lunch meeting with an editor. Any legitimate agent will furnish you, a prospective client, with a list of clients they already handle. They'll even let you talk with clients and ask about how they like working with this agent. As an agent once told a friend of mine, you don't hire an agent, you marry one. It's very true. So you want to be confident with the agent and certainly comfortable. Legitimate agents don't charge reading fees for manuscripts. They don't want you to pay for an outside editorial staff to go over your manuscript. They don't want you to contribute to a public relations fund. What they want you to do is turn out lots and lots of books so both of you can make money. If the agent asks you to pull money out of your pocket for stuff, do not walk away, run. Now I know there are some of you who just dream of having an agent and little nickel and dime costs here and there seem a small price to pay for the dream that they hold out. Still, we have to go back to the basic premise of an agent. He makes money by making a great deal for you. You want an agent who makes his living that way, not by fees and other ancillary crap. His monetary well-being and yours must be the same, not him sucking money out of you. The bottom line is this. If your work is good enough to attract the attention and interest of a legitimate agent, you'll get one. If it isn't, you'll be prey to every sharper out there who's willing to make you pay for your optimism. Frankly, come the revolution, those creeps are going to be up against the wall pretty fast. Until then, it's better for you to invest in your own future by spending time on your writing, not dollars on someone who promises you that success is right around the corner. So, how do you get better? Writing can be a solitary endeavor, and feedback and instruction are very useful. Well, aside from listening to this and other podcasts about writing, or subscribing to and reading The Secrets, you have two very obvious choices, writing classes and writing groups. Being honest here, I have never set much store in writing classes, and I never took one while I was in college. My reasoning for that was simple. If I didn't recognize the name or work of the teacher, there wasn't going to be anything he could teach me. Yeah, I know, that's unbelievably arrogant, but name me an 18-year-old who isn't arrogant at that time of life. While that judgment was naive, it did touch on a basic truth. You aren't going to learn much if your instructor is someone who does not understand or respect the type of work you're interested in writing. Now, that said, I actually do teach writing courses. Next month, for example, I'll be an instructor at the Arizona State University's Creative Writing Symposium, sponsored by the Virginia G. Piper Center for Creative Writing, right there on campus. If you do a Google search on Desert Nights Rising Stars, you'll get directed to their website. 
This will be the third year I've been an instructor, and I've attended a lot of the seminars offered by other instructors, in addition to being part of events for which I'm scheduled. This sort of scholarly class situation is fascinating to me because it's a great hothouse environment where you hear from writers and editors and poets about a whole host of subjects. By and large, writing is writing. While some folks may cloak their explanations in quotes from Plato or John Updike, the material you'll get is useful. I always learn something in the classes I attend. When you look at workshops and classes, you need to evaluate them based on who the instructors are, what subjects they're talking about, and whether or not you'll need get your needs met. Do they offer small class instruction where your work is evaluated? Is there a class on plotting if you think that's a weak link for yourself? By looking at the schedule and the instructors, if you can find a way to put together several solid days of mentoring, it's worth looking into. If you get a chance, you want to talk to folks who've been there before. That will give you a sense of whether or not the format's going to work for you. If a class is being held locally, you might even arrange to buy the teacher some coffee and find out his goals for the class. If you or he doesn't think you'd fit, you save yourself money and time. Moreover, he might be able to suggest another course or instructor who would be better suited to meet your needs. This next point is a very important one. I do not think you can listen to any teacher about writing unless you have read his or her work, period. I know that sounds like a secret way of my suggesting you go, go out and buy a secret atlas, which you already should have bought long since because I'm brilliant, but the point is simple. Many writers have no conscious clue as to what they're doing when they write. They'll tell you they're doing one thing and encourage you to do that, and yet their books reflect a different method of working. See, lots of writers don't take a good look at the process for fear of ruining the magic. I do, mainly because I'm anal retentive. I started as a game designer, and I believe that if I know the rules, it's much easier to break and warp them to my desires. As I've said before, you know, it's, it's all about torturing readers. Some folks will attend classes to find a bunch of other like-minded writers to form a writer's group, and this is another way you can improve. I think writer's groups are a great tool for writers. A long time ago, I belonged to one, and five of the six individuals in it have since gotten work published. The makeup of a group is very important and constitutes a delicate balance. Ideally, you want everyone in the group at roughly equivalent levels of skill. While it's true that there are some very productive groups that have the dynamic of a master writer and disciples, the potential there is for all the other writers to shape their work to please their master, and this is something that makes me very uncomfortable. In the group, you want folks with areas of expertise that complement each other. You definitely need a grammarian. You want somebody who knows science and medicine. You want an animal person. A weapons person is good, too, and somebody who's good at plotting and characterization. I know, it sounds like putting together a Mission Impossible team, but if the folks don't have the skills going in, responsibility for those areas can be parceled out and the expertise can be developed. There are some groups that allow writers to read their work aloud and then have it critiqued. This certainly works, but isn't to my taste for a couple of reasons. First, I know that I read work better than I actually write it. Second, this method is very time-consuming. Third, the writer doesn't get to walk away with anything more than the criticism or praise he can remember from that evening. I much prefer the method that our group used. In advance, each member got a photocopy to read over and mark up with corrections and questions. This way, we have our script for talking about the story. 
At the end of the evening, the writer would collect the corrected manuscripts and would have lots of material to work from when making changes. During a critiquing session, the person who wrote the story wasn't allowed to argue, though questions of clarification about a point were permitted. After everyone in the group had a say, then the writer would be able to ask specific questions, like, hey, what did you guys think of this section, or did it seem like this? So the writer would know if things he was hoping he was doing in a subtle manner were actually getting across or not. All criticism was directed toward the work, not the writer, avoiding the whole personal attack thing. It's far better to say, this simile doesn't work, than you're stupid, which is why your simile doesn't work. The whole experience of the group was great as far as I'm concerned. I learned a lot and there were things we discussed 23 years ago that I still remember and use to this day. There are, of course, dangers to critiquing groups, but these dangers are not limited to critiquing groups. The big one is revising your stories to suit the group. Look, it's your story. Just because someone says he didn't like something doesn't mean it's bad or wrong. It just didn't work for that reader. That's fine. Now, if one or two people don't like something, you want to take a look at it. If no one likes an element, you want to take a serious look at it. If you still think they're wrong, that's your privilege. But if you look at the criticism honestly and see if there are other instances of such a problem in your work, it's something you're going to want to deal with. This especially holds true in the areas of characterization and grammar. Get them wrong and you're really going to go nowhere until they're corrected. The other dangers are simple personality conflict or having a group failing to meet your needs. As you grow, as others grow or fail to grow, the group may need to split apart or some members may have to leave and be replaced by others. That's just the way it is. New blood is good and you're in a group to help your writing get better. It's great that you help others too, but if you're not getting the sort of help you need, it's not doing you any good. Move on and find a group that does work for you. Our group met once a week for about the first year, and then we went to every two weeks. After the first meeting, we didn't allow previously written work. From joining the group, each writer was expected to generate new material, which only makes sense. Old material didn't benefit from the criticism that had already been offered. We also, from time to time, offered challenges to the group. When a member heard of an anthology, she let us all know what they were looking for, and we wrote appropriate stories. Some of us actually sold them too, which was really cool. We sometimes challenged each other to write stories against type, forcing each of us to stretch and grow as writers. Some nights we'd have the men describe how they think about a subject, and then we'd have the women take a go at it. Getting an insight on how the other gender thought was invaluable. How can you find folks who might form a group? Drawing from a writing class is certainly one way. I've also found that in any book group, you have a handful of people who want to be writers. I'd look at joining a group at a library or a bookstore and then asking others if they're interested. And I hasten to point out, there are plenty of online writers' communities, like the workshop and the discussion forums at tsfpn.com. It's based around Mer Lafferty's podcast, I Should Be Writing, and offers critiques of your stories in return for your critiques of other stories. That would be a good first stop in trying to find a writers' group that will suit your needs. Ultimately, of course, the only way to get better at writing is by writing. If belonging to a writer's group will inspire you to write more, that alone will make it worth the time. The same goes for classes. And once you're kicking out really good stories, you can start looking for an agent that will be able to get you every cent you deserve from a publisher. And we'll all say, we knew you when. This is Michael A. Stackpole for The Secrets. Thanks for listening. 
Don't forget to visit www.stormwolf.com to get your sample issues of The Secrets. Please remember that A Secret Atlas will be on sale in the end of January in mass market, and the sequel, Cardamancy, will appear a month later. The podcast also has a discussion forum at www.tsfpn.com. Please feel free to come over there, ask questions, and participate in the discussions about writing. I'm not sure what the next podcast will cover. Hit the forum and make suggestions. Let me know what you want and need covered. This podcast is copyright 2006 by Michael A. Stackpole. I'll be back in a week or so with more about working with words. Until then, good luck with your writing. <laughs>